Hi listeners, welcome to episode 42 of Define Normal, a podcast where everything and nothing is normal. This week, I'm joined by Anicia, a friend of mine who is a private chef and an entrepreneur. She recently started a business called Kids Table. She also shares her journey from working in tech to becoming a private chef and now running a business. Her story is interesting. She talks about her clients, some of which you will recognize, and what it's like to work for some of New York's elite. So enjoy my interview with Anicia. Hi, Anicia. Welcome to Define Normal. Hello. I'm so excited to have you here today. Uh, We have such a good conversation to get into about your career, about being a personal chef, about the business you just started. But first, I want to kick off with an intro. Tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. Hello, I'm Anicia, and I am a New York City-based private chef, a nutritionist, and now I just became a founder of a food startup that is centered around kids' food. My first question is, how did you become a private chef? It sounds very corny and cliche, but it almost just, like, fell into my lap. You know, I've always loved cooking. I grew up cooking, and it just, you know, being in an immigrant household, being a chef or anything creative rather was just like never on the table. So like me becoming a chef was just like never anything that I had ever thought of. We are like ingrained to think that, you know, our parents came to this country for us to be a lawyer, a doctor, an engineer, nothing else. And so I think, you know, becoming a chef was just like, Mm, this is just something you do for fun. And after college, I actually ended up working in tech as like an office manager, employee experience manager. I did some EA work. But at the time, the tech industry, this was like 2012, 13, 14. The tech industry was very, very, very like white bro centric. And, you know, I experienced so much like racism, sexism, all the things. And so after a couple of years, I was just like, this isn't something I want to do. Like, I don't, I don't want to do this, but I don't know what I want to do. So I essentially, like, I quit my job in tech and everyone was like, bitch, you're crazy. Like, are you crazy? Like, (laughs) we're making money. We're drinking beer at work, rosé, like parties on Thursday. Like the gym, you know, our gym membership is comp. Like, how could you leave all of this? And I was just like, this is not for me. And I didn't know what I wanted to do next. I think I love the aspect of like the employee experience and planning events and planning like all of our perks and packages that we had for employees. Um, And, you know, also like working with our founders as an EA. I think I really loved all of those things, but I just did not love, you know, working in an office full of very wealthy, privileged white men. So I quit my job. I had moved to New York and I was like, I'm going to figure something out. And a friend of mine at the time, she was nannying for like athletes. At the time she was like with a family that worked or the dad was working for the Chicago Bulls. And then she like moved to another family and the dad was like a player on the Seattle Seahawks. And she was like, Anicia, like, why don't you just work for a high profile family? It's essentially the same thing. Like you're being an EA, you're planning out their experience. It's very lucrative. You know, you can make money. And I was just like, what? Like, no. And 
she was like, just do it in the interim. Like, do it until you can, like, find another job. And I'm like, okay, great. So I applied for an agency that basically staffs for this sort of thing. They staff for, like, private chefs, private nannies, private pilot, all the luxury services that these people use. Rich people things. Yes. Um, so I applied for an agency, and they accepted me. And they're like, all right, great. So they started staffing me on jobs with different families, celebrities, athletes, artists, all the things in like several different roles. I think that was kind of the the really great thing about me was like I had all this experience in the startup world because when you're in a startup, you're wearing like 10 hats at once. So I was able to kind of like go into these families' houses and do all sorts of things. And, you know, a lot of the families had private chefs. They had private chefs, they had private nutritionists, they had someone that was like, you know, organizing their kitchen. And oftentimes, you know, I would help with that. And I remember I worked for this family, this very, very rich artist, Larry Gogason. They often had dinner parties. And so, you know, my job, I was their executive assistant for the family. And so I would work with their chef and their event planner and kind of like source like things for these dinner parties. Like paid a full-time salary to do this. So, you know, I would be like at Williams Sonoma, like looking at tablecloths, like, you know, calling ceramicists in Israel to see if they can make Israeli platters, you know, calling different like wineries in Italy to see if they can like ship glasses over for this dinner that we had on Saturday. You know, I would also help the chefs with shopping. And so there were days where I was just like at Italy, like wandering around, like sourcing hundred dollar cheeses for these parties and I was like this could be really fun like I could actually like work in this world being a private chef and then the universe kind of just like worked itself out and I started getting booked on jobs with families who actually worked in food and one of the families was like a dad was like a really big food network producer the other was like Padma Lashmi, the other was like Gail Simmons, you know, all these really big names in food that I was working for, whether I was like nannying or doing executive assistant work or estate management work. And so I was like even closer to the industry. And I was just like, I guess we're going to do this. We're going to become a private chef and we're going to like cook for very rich and wealthy people. So I did a little bit of research and saw like what that entailed. I DM'd like some chefs on Instagram and I was like, um, I remember I DM'd this chef who was a chef for Floor Mayweather. And I was like, okay, what is your job? What do you do? How much money do you make? Like, what do I need to do to get started? And he told me everything. And then I had reached out to Sophia Rowe, who's a really good friend of mine now. And she was a private chef for several years before she's now like TV host, reporter all the things and she was like okay Anisia let's meet for coffee and I was like okay we meet for coffee and she tells me she's like you're gonna apply for this program you're going to go get this set of knives and you're gonna do it and I was like okay so I ended up going to the Institute of Culinary Education in Battery Park in New York did the whole culinary program interned at a few restaurants and then Essentially, I just went back to those agencies that I was already working for. And I was like, hey, I don't nanny anymore. I don't travel with families anymore. I don't run estates. But I am a chef now. And they were like, okay. And they started staffing me on chef jobs. And like the the rest is kind of history. Wow. Okay, so so much has happened in this time. You moved to New York. You quit the startup. You nanny. You are basically like an executive 
assistant to these giant estates. So I have like a million questions, just all yes. of that. Yes. But my first one is, how did it compare to corporate America? Like you like left these bros and you left this like startup space and now you're working with a different set of people, but they're still wealthy and it's still a different world. So how did the two compare? So it's actually interesting. I think a lot of it is the same and then a lot of it is so different. And I think it's the same in the aspect of like, these people's homes are essentially a business. You know, there are departments and there are people who work in these departments. There's HR, you know, there's a biz dev person that's like planning out the next steps in their lives. You know, there's a travel team, you know, there's a finance team where they have like their three accountants and like they have their private equity person and they have like all these different departments that kind of like work together to make their lives afloat. And so I think it's the same, you know, in corporate America, you know, you work in a specific department, you work with a team of people, you are still measured on performance, you are still measured on, you know, where you're going to grow next within the family. Like, what are you going to do next? How are you going to make their lives like that much more grand? How are you going to solve all these problems? So I think in that sense, it's, it's essentially the same. Interview processes are the same. When you're leaving a family, it's the same. You give your two-week notice if you respect them. (laughs) You know, there's some families that you're like, bye, I'm leaving. Like, see ya. I'm out. I'm out. In that aspect, it's the same. But it's very different because you are in a personal setting. So you are in these people's homes. You know, you see your boss, like, when they wake up, when they go to sleep, when they are having a high day and a low day you see them in all aspects of their lives and I think that's the part you don't see in corporate America like you're not going to see your boss in his underwear having a call you're not going to see that and essentially you know you're not going to like hide your boss's like mistress or like you're not going to be booking a hotel for like you know him to travel to like do some like strange sketchy business that's going to bring in millions of dollars to the family like you're not doing that. And so I think that's where it's very different. And then also like the, the politics and policies and the culture that is set in place in corporate America, you know what you can do, what you can't do, like what's normal. Also like the protection aspect as an employee, like in corporate America, you are protected by laws that are put in place. But when you're working for personal, like, family or a person, this is their personal lives. Like, they make the rules. They make their own little laws. So you're not really protected. And, you know, there's no rules. There's no policies in place. And shit gets crazy. <laughs> like, shit gets really, really crazy and very, very, very unprofessional. I think over the years I've had to, like, redefine, like, what professional is to me um, because it's just, like, in, there's things, like, I could never ever do in corporate America that I could do with the family. And then on the other side, there's things that like your boss like could never do in, like in corporate America, but like they can do with their staff at home because like that's their personal preference or whatever. Right. Like it's their domain. So they're yeah. like you said, they're making the rules. It's my house. If I want to do this, if it goes. That's it. Yeah. So I think that's where it's, it's a lot different. And then also, like, you know, you are, yeah, you're in their personal lives. And so, you know, whereas, like, in a corporate corporate life, the day ends at five or six or seven or whatever, but it ends. You're (laughs) not in their home with them. It literally ends. But when you are in these people's personal lives, like, their lives don't end. So, you know, you are on call all day. 
all day, all night. There are moments where you are traveling and you don't know when you're going to be able to go home because again, you're working on their personal schedule. So how does that work as far as, so you've, you've told us a lot about being a private chef. I feel like I'm, again, I'm like, my head is swirling. So you're in these people's homes. You're kind of like at their discretion. There isn't a set, there's not set hours. It's like, maybe I have a dinner party. Maybe my kids are having people over. Maybe I just want snacks like to have at my house. So how do you break down your time? Like how many families do you work with at a time? And then like, what are your commitments to these families? Yeah. So I think, you know, the thing about private chef industries, it's it's very dynamic. There are several different clients. And I think people often think you're only working with rich people or you're only working with a family. So there are like, there are family clients where, you know, they want like breakfast, lunch, and dinner. They just want like a weekly meal prep. It's very simple. And maybe like you're stocking their pantry. And then, you know, there's like celebrity clientele and there's athletes and they're getting ready for movies or shows or sporting events. And in those moments, like you are working on a team, you are community, you are having meetings with like their doctors, their plastic surgeons, their nutritionists, their trainers, their accountant to create this like meal plan that goes with their lifestyle and making sure the cost fits the budget and things like that. And then there are like private chef consultants where, you know, you are hired by a food tech company or a food product company to help them develop recipes. So there are like a different, like there's very different clientele that you can work with. I work with all of those different clientels. Um, So it kind of just depends on like what my workload is. I think usually I like to take on two or three families or clients at a time. And some families, they actually have someone that works full time. So you work 40, 50 hours a week with this one particular family. And then there's some clients where, you know, you just only work with them when they're traveling. Like say they're in New York once a month for a week. That's when you work with them. Or, you know, this past summer I worked with Jared Leto for House of Gucci. So he filmed that for several weeks and I worked with him for several weeks and then he went to LA, never want to see him again. (laughs) Um, So you know there are jobs, so there are like jobs like that where like, you know, people are only here for a film, a movie or a show or there maybe they live by coastal. So, you know, you're kind of just working with one-offs and so I'm really good at managing that. And, you know, if there are moments where it's slow, then I'll pick up a family that is a little bit more demanding where, like, you know, say they need someone three or four days a week and I have the time to do it, I'll do it. Sometimes when you're on a project where it's, like, a show, like, you can't really take anyone else on. So you are kind of just, like, at this one client's house. So it just, it kind of depends on the time of the year, clientele. I think in the summer for chefs, it's very, very busy because that's when people are on vacations. In New York, the Hamptons is very, very big. You know, like all of your clients go to the Hamptons for the summer. Like that is where you work. And so you're taking clients throughout the summer in the Hamptons and then maybe you come back in the fall, you get ready for the holidays. So it just, it really changes like throughout the seasons of the year. And then depending on like what clients you are working with. That's really cool because I mean, in corporate America, things more or less stay the same. Like we have seasons of like, we're busier during this time or a little more dead during this time. Or like, if you work in media, we have like our tentpole moments where it's like, okay, the Super Bowl is coming up or like, you know, all these different things are happening, yeah. but you have a new office, new vibe, new people yeah. like weekly or daily. Yeah, or daily. And I think the pandemic also just really, really changes that because 
you know, people are, they're traveling. I mean, it changes in the sense where, like, the pandemic for rich people just does not matter. <laughs> and so, like, you know, there are oftentimes where, like, yeah, people are still traveling or, you know, they're kind of all over the place. Um, and then, you know, with the Omicron spike, that was actually a very, very busy moment for me because these people were getting COVID and they were isolating. And they were like, we need food. Like, so like, in that sense, it was very busy. Whereas other industries, it was very slow because they're like, everyone has COVID, no one can work or, you know, this person's isolated, whatever. So it was very interesting to see like in COVID times, like the spike in business. And then, you know, when things started opening up, they no longer wanted chefs. You know, people wanted to actually leave their homes. And so, like, they were going to restaurants and they were traveling, they were eating on yachts and, like, things like that. So, you know, a lot of us private chefs, like, that became a slower season for us. Yeah, so it's it's very different in the pandemic. Yeah, it's kind of surprising that it picked up during Omicron when everything else was closing, if that makes sense. It's like, yeah, food, we're isolated in our house. Yes. Um, so you talked about working with some of these celebrities, like you talked about like the agency, how you initially finished culinary school, and then you got kind of like associated with different families and interviewed with them. But now that you've established a clientele, how do you go about sourcing clients? So, so I still work with agencies. So agencies still kind of staff me on jobs. And then a lot of it is actually just word of mouth. There are moments where, you know, you'll do a dinner party and like someone's at the table and they're like, oh my God, I fucking love this gazpacho. Like, can you make it for me? What's your information? So you see that kind of thing. And then, yeah, a lot of it is just like, a fr- I mean, in that world, I think it's just, it's very interesting because like these people have like a, a very small like network. And, like, they all share the same lawyers and, like, private equity accountants and, like, nannies and chefs. And so, like, they're always, like, recommending each other. And I think the the demographic of people also, like, they're very discreet about what they are doing. And so they often don't want to go to an agency to, like, give all their whole life information. They'd rather just, like, call up their friend and be like, hey, like saw you in the Hamptons with your chef. What's your chef's name? Can I use them next week? So yeah, it's a lot of, it's a lot of like word of mouth. And the word of mouth thing is very interesting because like you just don't know like who knows who. And like sometimes you'll work with a family where you think, oh, they're just like normal. But like mom goes to Pilates with Lady Gaga and you're like, okay. Just like if that's interesting. And you know, so you get like clientele and it's just interesting because they use these people as like, or they say it like it's just really casual. Like I remember I was working for a woman. Um, she was a really big like New York City like broker, big real estate agent broker. Like owned a lot of buildings, and she was like, "Yeah, like my best friend Ashley wants uh, would like to hire a chef." And I was like, "Oh, okay, that's great." And it turned out this was Ashley Graham, and, and I was like, "What? Like why didn't you say that?" But it's just like it just like the word of mouth and like the way that the word travels. It's just it's very interesting because like they're so connected, but like also so like far, but it's like, oh, you're just like your best friend, Ashley. Like your best friend, Ashley Graham. Like giant supermodel, okay. Yeah, exactly, (laughs) yeah. So it just, it's very interesting. Same with like Jared Leto, you know, I had a client and they were like, oh, friend of mine works in production and like they are filming for a show and they kind of just like want food for the set. And I was like, oh, okay, that's great. And then it's like, oh no, Jared Leto wants food for his set. Like, so like, yeah, it's just, it's very interesting the way word of mouth travels and the different types of people that you can be introduced to. 
And yeah, you never know. It's like they're a lawyer of someone or they're an accountant of someone or they're a travel agent to someone. And it just kind of like spreads like that. That's interesting. And I'm sure you've built like quite a network because that's kind of how New York works in general, right? It's like you hear of someone who's doing this and then you just kind of pass names around. So I can totally see how that's been the case. Yes. So tell us about your new business venture that you started. So you started the kids table and I've been seeing all of your marketing on Instagram. It looks amazing. So I want to hear about the idea, how it came to be, how it's going so far. Like, tell us about your venture into being an entrepreneur now. Yeah. So kids table, I, so while I was working with, I mean, in the private chef world and with families in general, you oftentimes feed kids. And I just kind of noticed that like you would make a menu for like the parents and the grownups and they'd be like, Oh, can you make this like for my kid? And I was just like, why is the kid eating something different? Like, I don't understand. And then you get clients who they, they spend a lot of money on their food and their nutrition. But when it comes to their kid, they're like, I could care less. You could eat a bodega sandwich. Like, don't care. I'm over here eating $100 caviar, like salmon shipped from Alaska. Like, you can eat a hot dog. You can eat a hot dog. Don't care. And so I've noticed that there was kind of like this gap in the food world when it came to kids the kids were still just eating kid food no matter how wealthy they were how much access they had um and you know one of the biggest complaints that parents often have was like my kid is so picky they never eat my my kid is so picky they never eat but i would work with other families whose kids were eating all the things um and especially a lot of like ethnic families you know their kids were growing up eating whatever they were eating and i remember working for a family this was like a friend the mom was like a big french designer and the dad was german and i remember they made this dish it was like coke oven which is just like a chicken with like red wine sauce and she literally put it in the blender blended it up and fed it to her baby and i was like what (laughs) what like what's happening what's happening and then she would take like they would have like short ribs with like this like extravagant like root vegetables and again she would put that short rib and those vegetables in the blender and just feed it to her her baby and i was like what and she was like oh no in europe there's no such thing as kid food like there's no such thing as that like we just feed the kid what we eat so then it got me to thinking about like my upbringing you know growing up in a nigerian household like we ate nigerian food we ate spicy food we ate fishes we had like you know sour foods fermented foods spicy foods you know sweet foods savory foods and i just it's like something just clicked in my head like wow there is like a disconnect in the, the world of food when it comes to kids you know kids are still eating mac and cheese chicken nuggets but yet like you know how do we translate that into adulthood and so there was like a few instances like there was another instance where I went on a date with a guy and he was like yeah I've never had Indian food I never like I've like 36 years old was like I've never eaten this and I was like wait what like what like I just I don't I'm not understanding right like how how and then the pandemic happened And we went through all this, like, Black Lives Matter, you know, racial equality, all of this, like, all this education surrounding it. And I was like, wow, in order for us to make sure that this shit actually works is, like, we have to teach this, like, to children so that, like, they don't grow up to be a Donald Trump or, like, whatever. So, like, we have to teach kids about other cultures and we could do that, like, through food. 
And so it just like light bulbs just started clicking and I was like, wow, like what if I created a business that was like kids food, but it was inspired by global flavors. And I started researching, looking at the market. Again, there was nothing like it. Started talking to parents and they were like, oh my God, this is be amazing. You know, like I am Filipino American, you know, I grew up eating this food, but for some reason, like, you know, people don't want to feed it to their kids. And I was like, this is crazy. So then I talked to a nutritionist and I was like, why is this? And she was like, it's white supremacy. You know, it's essentially white supremacy. This is why, you know, we are teaching kids that they should be eating beige, bland food. They grow up to think that the world is beige and bland. And she was like, it's not, it's not by mistake, Anisia. Like, it's not by mistake at all. It's literally white supremacy. And she was like, I think this is a great idea. So I came up with Kids Table. Um, and Kids Table is essentially a New York City-based meal delivery and catering service that is globally inspired. And our mission is to create adventurous, cultural, healthy eaters, um, starting as a kid. I love that. I think that you made a really good point about how those types of foods, like beige food, especially because both of us grew up in the Midwest. It's like, yeah, the food there, even as someone who spent most of her time in the Midwest, like I was born in Tennessee, but I was raised in Indianapolis and Dayton, Ohio. And like, I say this to my parents all the time, the stuff we'd eat at home, because my dad is from New Orleans and he yeah. like cooks mostly in my house. And so the people would come to my house and they would be like, what are you eating? Like I would, <laughs> I would yeah. be like eating shrimps with the head on at my house yeah. or like eating like gumbo or jambalaya or like yeah. just anything. We don't really eat Midwestern cuisine. Like, yeah casseroles like chicken and rice like things that people were eating that were like inherently beige that I've grown to like have some appreciation for but yeah of I didn't grow up eating them so I love an egg salad like right right like there's stuff we picked up that I'm like hey I'm not mad at it but like I didn't grow up eating that like one of my friends her mom makes the best chicken and noodles like delicious Ooh, yeah. but that's never something we would eat in my house and like yes. and you think about it it's, it's again, what you said rooted in white supremacy, because I would never go to their houses and say like, oh, I can't believe you guys are eating that. It's gross. But people would come to my house yes. and be like, oh my God, why are you eating that? Like, I remember a girl specifically, I was in eighth grade and we had like, um, like a seafood boil of sorts at my house. And we, I was just eating shrimp from the refrigerator. Like I literally just picked a shrimp <laughs> with the head on and like popped the head off and was like peeling it and eating it. And she like, was like, oh, I'm just having my little after school snack. Right? <laughs> she was looking at me like, what are you doing? Like she was yeah. so repulsed by the whole exchange. And I'm like, oh, I like grew up eating. Like I grew up eating this. And I have a lot of friends who like don't eat seafood, don't eat things that like, yeah. they think everything is spicy even when it has like, I don't like spicy food. So if I'm eating it, it's not spicy. <laughs> like, I'm like, um, it just, it has flavor. Like you're very That's used it. to bland flavors. Yeah. So I'm and excited I that you're doing this. Cause I think it's phenomenal. Like there are so many adults to your point who we meet still, I mean, at our age who are like, I've never had this. I don't eat that. And I'm like, are you going to order chicken tenders at this place as a grown person? <laughs> no, literally. And I mean, yeah, to your point, I remember like as a kid, like this, it goes back to like when I was a kid, you know, my dad would pack my lunch 
and he would put like jollof rice or like there was like this chicken foot stew that he would make and I would just be at school like gnawing on bones like eating my stuff and next to me you know I grew up in a very predominantly white neighborhood a very white suburban neighborhood and the only minorities were either like black or Asian that was it like we didn't have any other type of minority and so I would sit next to the Asian kids and you know they would have you know their traditional foods as well and we would just like sit next to each other and people would just like look at us crazy and make fun of us and call us names and it just like yeah just for some reason as I grew up you know I just thought like you know those things would change and I remember as a chef you know I worked for a family and they were Korean and the the reason actually why they hired a chef was because the mom was like my kids don't eat American food like they literally don't eat American food so I need someone to like come and make them American food because I don't and I remember the little guy he was like I just I there's nothing I want to have I love Korean food but I want to have American food because at school the kids are making fun of me and I was like in in 2021 like what and so like it just yeah, it's just crazy. And I was like, this has got to change. And we have to really change the way that we think about kid food. You know, we have to view it as human food. And humans in America come from all different backgrounds and cultures and diversities. And we eat all different types of food. And that needs to reflect at a very young age. Also, the irony of a kid being made fun of for his Korean food in the year 2022, when literally Asian food is trendy. I think that's oh, the yeah. most ridiculous part of it all is I remember there's a Japanese girl I went to school with and she would bring her lunch people would be like it smells like they would make all these comments about her yeah. now those same people are like I know where the best ramen is I want to go oh, get yeah. sushi I want to any any Asian food they're like yes let's do it yeah let's do it and I think yeah it just it becomes this thing where like oh it's trendy it's trendy and I'm like it's just food it's just food and you can't like decide that someone's food is cool or it's not it's yeah. like this is the food they eat this is yeah, their culture exactly exactly it's very it's a very interesting topic. what have been the most popular dishes so far like what are the kids loving so the kids are loving um so we have these like teriyaki bowls and i think the kids love it because it's the sauce and it is a little bit sweeter it's a little bit tangy there's also like I do a Middle Eastern bowl with like zatar chicken tenders and so it's kind of just like a play on the whole like chicken tenders, chicken nuggets where we add in like little mi Middle Eastern spices. The dip is instead of ketchup and mustard we use tzatziki and hummus as the dip and I think those are really really huge faves. Um, also our snacks are a big fave. I have like these oat muffins that we put like cardamom and like garam masala like a lot of Indian spices in. And kids love those too. And so I think, you know, when I was ma menu planning, the idea was to take traditional dishes that kids actually already eat and just inspire them with global flavors. Like we do have like a pasta meatball. So we use, it's more like a Vietnamese style meatball with like a vermicelli noodle. So we kind of take those same like styles of food that kids are already used to eating and then just adding in the global flavors and global inspired menu options obviously without like extreme culturally appropriation like i'm not making korean barbecue like zucchini noodles like that's, we're not doing that like not taking it that far we're not doing that and so you know with menu planning i want to make it approachable for kids and also parents because this is this the thing is is it's very new for parents you know parents are like what what kind of food like what my kid would never eat this and it's 
they just never tried it. And I think a lot of the feedback I had gotten in the beginning was like, oh my God, my kid wouldn't eat this. And it's like, but have you tried it? No. And then it turns out the kid like loves it. Um, and a couple weeks ago I had a mom, we had did like a five spice, like Vietnamese chicken. And she was like, oh my gosh, the kids demolished it. And she was like, I've never, ever tried any ethnic foods with them. And I was like, well, here you go. <laughs> yeah, those are kind of, yeah, the faves. We have our, yeah, our Zatar bowl, our chicken teriyaki bowl. We do like an arrows con pollo, which is like chicken and rice with like a tomato black bean salad. The kids are loving that one too. Well, these are some fancy kids. <laughs> they're, they're having a more exciting lunch than I am. I know it's so funny because I had I get a lot of grown-ups who are like, oh my god, like I want to eat this, or like, can I? Like, I actually like had a mom. She like ordered extra food for herself, and I was like, girl, this is not for adults. This is what <laughs> it's sounding tasty. Like I'm like, I want the zatar. You know, some of our regular customers, I can see on the back end, I can see like what moms are ordering like for themselves. Because um, some of the kids I actually know, I like used to work with them. And so I know what they eat, and I'm like, girl, I know I know your kid's not eating this. Like, this is for you. Is for you. Um, or, you know, if they have, like, maybe their kid, they have, like, one kid in their family, and they're ordering three of the same dish. I'm like, okay, so one's for you and your husband and your child. So, yeah, it is very interesting, but that is the goal. You know, that's the goal is I want kids to be able to eat like grown-ups, you know, eat like normal people. I love that. I think, like, like we said before, that's an amazing goal because there's – so much like picky eating, only eating certain things. Yeah. And I think it just expanding the palate will only make you better as an adult. Nobody wants yeah. to be that friend who eats nothing. Like Yeah, exactly. And then, yeah, it just introduces kids to other cultures, other people, and it just creates a community around food. I love it. So let's talk a little bit about the business side now that we've talked about like what you're actually making and the premise of the company. Like how hard was it to start this? What What goes into starting your own business? Especially in a time where like, <laughs> everyone wants to do that like every tiktok i see is like quit your nine to five and like oh yeah yeah like follow your dreams i mean as someone who's doing it like give yeah. us the real on how hard it is and how rewarding it is first of all don't quit your nine to five i just i mean i think you know in this world of like quit your job quit your nine to five i'm like we like that a nine to five is still amazing like you know it's still amazing people very like they flourish in those lifestyles and not everyone can take the entrepreneurial route i think it takes a very specific type of person to go on the entrepreneurial route i think because it is very unstable <laughs> like it is not a stable life there are many ups there's downs you know there are days where you are like crying there are days that are great there are little victories and there's also losses and those losses are on you and it's not a company you know whereas like you know working for a company like a package can get lost and you're like okay like that's on them but like as a person you know as an entrepreneur like your package gets lost that's your three thousand dollars that's from your your personal savings account so it's different in the sense where like you when you have your own company like everything kind of just falls onto you so I think when I had first started this it was interesting so I had actually consulted with some people who are like worked in this world I consulted with a woman who owns a splendid spoon um, Daily Harvest and I kind of reached out to these people and was like how do you get started what do you do and it was very interesting because some people actually like they started fully funded fully backed everything and then there were some people who were like I just I started I started small I started local and then I kind of branched out 
Um, so I knew that like one being a black woman going into a startup space, like it would be very, very hard to get funding, um, and very, very hard to get backing. And also like, I don't have a seat, you know, a pool of friends and family that can see millions of dollars. That's just not my life. (laughs) Um, so I was like, how can I do this? Like starting out, like what would it take? And I think, you know, the great thing about, me starting a business in food was I was already a chef. So like that part was taken care of. And I think there's some companies like Daily Harvest or HelloFresh where they were not chefs. And so like they they had to hire chefs and they had to like pool this money and funding to be able to hire a test kitchen to test recipes, to hire a nutritionist to go through that. But I already had that background. So that was a huge advantage to me. So the startup, the whole startup part was just like, getting a space and then getting permits for that space, which was very, very hard living in New York City during a pandemic, like it's a mess. So, you know, getting the permits and getting everything approved, registering your business, and then it was like testing recipes and creating an actual product. And then it was like finding packaging to grow into that product. And so for weeks I was ordering samples of different packaging, um, testing it out. And then it went into like website making. So making our website and figuring out how we were going to like run the menu, run the back end and all of that. And then it was just like, how are we going to make this come into production? So what does production entail? And so I kind of figured out like, this is what it would take for me to package food. So, you know, you send a menu out um, or they have a set menu to order from. You order the ingredients from that menu you make the food, you package the food, and then you deliver it out. So obviously there's so many different aspects of that. So I kind of, it was just like one by one. I was like, okay, like do for delivery. Okay, go through this delivery company. Right now I do the deliveries and I have a friend that does deliveries, but eventually we'll grow into a company. Then production, it was like, okay, what do we do? Um, how do we get our kitchen space? You know, how do we set it up? Things like that. That's just kind of like how it happened. I think luckily, again, because I worked in the industry, I was able to connect with so many people that were already kind of doing something like this um, or that knew people that could help um, do it. Yeah, so your network helped. I love that you also said, don't don't quit your nine to five. I think some of us need to hear that. Like I still have my nine to five. I'm still private chefing. I still have clients. And so I think, you know, being an entrepreneur, like balancing that out is really hard. And I think figuring out what... Uh, what your day-to-day is and also you know having hard conversations with clients you know clients can be very demanding and you have to really set boundaries because you're like I don't have time for this anymore because I'm now running a company (laughs) so yeah setting boundaries with your clients and you know kind of figuring out logistically like how to make it work again I think it is a little bit easier because my nine-to-five is food and my business is food and so I'm able to tie those things together Right. It's not like two different diverging paths. And you probably learn stuff from like being on your nine to five and like, oh, this could work. Your kids are eating this. Yeah, exactly. And I think, yeah, the difference, you know, like it's I'm working on my budget. I'm not working on a client's budget, which is very different. So, you know, like, yeah, it's, you know, having a business, I think you don't realize like I was like, oh, I'm already a chef. I can just cook like that's it. But like I didn't realize like how much goes behind the scenes, you know, getting your permits, getting, you know, it's food. So, you know, you have to be approved by like the 
Food and Drug Administration. You know, you have permits that you have to put in place. There's recipes that you have to test, you know, um, figuring out the cost dynamics, how much your ingredients cost versus your profit margin. If you trade this ingredient out, how much do you have to increase your the price of the meal? And then also like running a back-end website, you know, making the experience like user-friendly and customer-friendly, like from the ordering platform, if I'm a customer, like what are the different things I can do? And like, that's something also that like, we're still kind of working out the little kinks in the back end. you know, what works from an ordering platform. And I think, you know, as a customer, you think you just like click and purchase, but there's so much that goes on behind that. Right. And then there's marketing, you know, marketing your business and what that entails, you know, some, for some businesses, influencer and marketing work. Some businesses, it's Facebook ads. Some businesses, it's like, you know, local like flyers everywhere. It's just, it's so different. Has been very, very fun, but also very exhausting and very draining and very humbling um, to figure out. Inexpensive. I mean, you made a good point. Like the way you can ball out when you're spending a client's money, you're in Italy, you're in Whole Foods, you're yeah. in a specialty grocery. And then for your stuff, you're like, I want quality, but also like, this is my money. Like there's a budget. No, exactly. Yeah, this is my money. And I think, you know, when I was starting out, I was like, you know, you, yeah, as an entrepreneur, like you're investing in yourself and you don't ask, you know, where this money is going to go, if it's going to go for good or if it's just all going to go to waste. And so I think one tip I got, you know, while like consulting with other entrepreneurs and businesses, they were like, okay, set an amount that you'd be comfortable with, like just losing, which was like $5, girl. <laughs> Like, I'm sick if I drop a 20. So I don't right? know what to like, say. What do you mean? Um, and, you know, they're like, no, no, see, like tens of thousands. Like, what would you be comfortable putting it out there and knowing that you either like tried your best or like, wow, you know, this is, I only spent this amount or I spent this amount and then my business blew up. So like, you know, finding the, like the middle ground between both of those is very, very hard mentally to figure out like, you know, if I spend 10, 20, 30, 40, $50,000 and this blows up to multi-million dollars company, like amazing. Right. Like, let's go. Let's go. But like, you know, $50,000 and it goes to nowhere. Like, am I okay with that? What made me very comfortable was I just, I was like, this is something I want to do. Like, this is something I want to do and I can learn from it. I can grow from it. Who knows what can come after that? And I think, you know, what I learned from one, uh, like a, a podcast I listened to was like the business you start is not the business that you run. And I think that was like very inspiring and motivating to me because I knew like, okay, I could start this business, but then run something else or pivot somewhere else or like do something else and it could be okay. I think that's the best advice. Like I thought about that a lot with this podcast, like, and I also work at a startup now. So I think yeah. often about like, this, the founder story at our startup and how they've built other startups. And this this is actually ultimately the one that yes. is going to be probably the one. And then for me, like from the conception of my first episode to now, like it's taken so many different forms and like being okay with, all right, I started it as this, but sometimes people dictate what it'll become and, and what they no, need. No, exactly. And I think it's, it's very interesting because there was a couple of years ago, I actually thought of starting a subscription box company. And it was like a subscription service, like for women of color. And it would be like hair, beauty, wellness. I thought of this whole thing. And then it ended up like 
we ran a Kickstarter for it, didn't do very well, and then I was like, okay, I don't know if this is gonna work because there's already so many subscription boxes on the market. But it kind of came full circle when I started Kids Table because I was like, oh, this could be a subscription meal service. And I already had that experience. And so like, even when I was running Burpees and Brunch was my other bot of the other company. But I was like, wow, I did invest in that. And I did learn from that and grow from that. And that actually brought me to Kids Table. And now I'm able to kind of like run this with the knowledge that I already had. And so, yeah, I think it's worth it. You, I mean, you, I learn every single, like every hour I'm learning, I'm learning something new. And I think it's so beneficial. And I've talked to so many like successful entrepreneurs or people in business or speakers or people who have podcasts. And it's just very interesting that their story is not just like linear. They're not like, I started this podcast and this was it. Or you right. started this business and this was it. It's like, oh no, I started this business and then it failed. And then I consulted here and then that failed. And then I did this and then it failed. Like, so, you know, you go through a lot of failures until you find your one thing or like your win. Right. And trying's half the battle. I mean, I think that the willingness to try and fail and talk about it will eventually lead you to the path. Cause I think so many people are discouraged by it not working the first time then they quit. Yeah, so exactly. You'll find it if you keep trying to find it. Cause it's, I'm sure, like, when I saw your marketing, I was like, oh, my God, this looks so good. But, like, I mean, as someone who works in marketing, I'm aware of how much work went into that. Like, you didn't just wake up and say, okay, cool, cool pictures of Kids Table. Like, you've been doing all types of stuff. (laughs) Of course, you get a lot of doubts. You get imposter syndrome. You know, these things happen. And I think, you know, something I, like, I literally have a post-it on my mirror. And it's like, but what if it, what if you thrive? But what if you fly? You know? And it's like, think about, like, but what if it fails? What if it does this? What if? What if people hate me? Like, what if I get canceled? You know, like all of these things, but it's like, but wait, but what if it does amazing? Yeah, like, you know, what if you go on to like do something else? Like, what if your podcast grows into a show? Like, you never know. Yeah, you never know. Half the battle is putting yourself out there. So I have one more question for you, and it's about food, of course. What is your favorite thing to make and what is your favorite thing to eat? My favorite thing to make are tacos. I just, I think I just like love the rotisserie of tacos and it's just like, it's also very simple. It's just like a protein, some onion, cilantro, a salsa. So is it corn tortilla or flour tortilla? Uh, corn, all okay. day. Okay. All day, corn. Corn tortillas. <laughs> and I think my favorite thing to eat, I think if you follow me on Instagram, you know this. I love a whole fish. I was going to say like a branzino. <laughs> posted one the other day every time i see a whole fish i think of you because i'm like anicia post like them. a bronzino queen like i am literally a hoe for bronzino like i will strip my clothes for a whole bronzino like, i literally saw one on your store yesterday <laughs> like i am obsessed and i think again like as a kid you know like you were saying you know you were eating like the head off a shrimp thing you know as a kid like we would get it like my dad would make like a whole fish stew or a soup and we would just like pick at it and like suck on the bones and like me and my siblings would like fight over the eyeballs which is very interesting because now I'm like I'm not eating eyeballs like like no <laughs> like but I think as a kid it was like fun and funny like you I was like a little bit more adventurous but like yeah that was always just like so good to me and I've always loved fish and so like I will order a whole fish anywhere I go. Like anywhere I see one, that is what I'm ordering. I also make them at home, but I think, yeah, my favorite thing to make at home is tacos because I can do it for any meal of the day. Like I often make breakfast tacos, 
with like just some eggs, maybe chorizo, or just maybe like eggs and veggies and a salsa, guacamole, and we're good to go. Or like for dinner with like chicken or pork belly or lamb. And it's also a crowd pleaser. I think when I have friends over or when I'm going to a friend's house, like that's the one thing that's like very easy to like make and prep and bring and like most people love tacos. I mean, I co-signed the food. You've cooked for many of our friend gatherings at this point. Yes, so yes. Definitely co-signing the food. It's delicious. Yes. Well, thank you, Anisia. This has been great. I can't wait to watch Kids Table blow up. And just thank you so much for the conversation. Thank you so much for having me. This was so fun. Thank you for listening to another episode of Define Normal. If you like the episode or have any feedback for me, please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app. You can also follow the podcast on Instagram at Define Normal. See you next week.